This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, would you buy a shoe made from plants like salad on your feet? Okay, so it's not salad on your feet. But Eric Litke is here. He's CEO and co-founder of Unless. It's a company that makes all kinds of clothes and now shoes plant-based. The idea is it's biodegradable. So over the course of time, it will biodegrade and become dirt. They also get recycled that way and turned into dirt, composted, if you will. So we take a deep dive into the shoes that they're making that are made from plants and minerals only, not from chemicals and all the plastics that are in most of our shoes and clothing. Cool stuff. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign Affairs, National Defense, and National Security at McDonald-Laurier Institute, gives us an in-depth look at geopolitical events from around the world and their impacts on Canada from the view of Canadians. Plus, Handy Andy Barrar is an expert in foot rubs and DIY. It's true, and it's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. A little while ago, we had uh, a gentleman on who had a uh, quite a past in the world of fashion and sneakers. And he went off on a project of his own. And the, the part of it that I think I took away the most was it doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter your success level. It does inside your career. It doesn't matter how far up you go. Uh, sometimes everyone still just has a dream of something that they want to do. And Eric Lickey was one of those guys who was incredibly successful and had a great career with Adidas and and could have probably just kept working in that world for the rest of his career and and been happy and you know had a had a nice home to live in and and ate good meals and drove a nice car but the reality is is sometimes we still have dreams eric how are you it's good i'm good and it's good to be back how are you doing good thank you very much um it, this is just a wild conversation when we first had you on we were talking about sustainability and clothing and and so much more this has grown into sustainability and sneakers. Ryan O'Donnell is here, of course, because I said the S word, um, <laughs> which would be yeah. sneakers. And um, Ryan, why don't you tell us what Eric had sent you in the mail and uh, what it looked like and, and what it was. So uh, Eric, thank you, by the way, sent me a uh, pair of the Unless, which is their company, Degenerate, which is a 100% plant-based sneaker that you can ship off to them and they will biodegrade they'll compost it and uh it looks like your uh it looks like a hybrid of like a van skate shoe with a little bit of the designer sort of uh fashion end of it and it functions and performs like your average sneaker except it's made from plants it's fascinating um eric it's a real throwback really stylistically with a lot of modern cue uh cues like the um the, the thicker soul. Tell us a little about what you're up to here because um, this unless collective thing in the last, I don't know, was it six months ago, nine months ago we chatted? Um, yeah, probably maybe a little longer. Yeah, grown and changed and become even better, more popular. And somehow you pulled it off, man. You got the sneaker, you did it. Yeah, I think the, the brand unless was always founded with the idea of, a, of can we do 100% plant and mineral based shoe? Um, that was always the, 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 the major mission we were on is to you know, most shoes in the industry uh, are made out of nine to 12 different materials, and they're usually different materials from some sort of petrochemical or petroleum-based feedstock means materials. Um, so whether you're talking about, you know, the synthetic linings, the synthetic, um, you know, materials on the upper, the, the, the 
The foams are all polyurethane based. Um, the outsoles have gone to synthetic rubbers almost 100%. The shoelaces stretch is synthetic. The shoelace tips are synthetic. So everything is made from basically bad stuff that comes from the ground um, that doesn't go away at the end. Um, so you basically entomb your foot in this in this sack of polyurethane. Um, and it's it's like there's there, and that's just like um, how shoes are made. And it's good because those materials are durable. They're flexible. They're everlasting. But they're not good when you're done with them. They end up um, become breaking down into smaller pieces of forever materials. So we a, took the I just want to insert one thing there, Eric. I, I want you to continue that thought. But it just occurred to me that, you know, we talk about things on our skin. I've never yeah. seen any research to it, but there's got to be something, especially with your feet, your toes, the space between your toes when you're surrounding them, like you said, in tomb, um, in all those chemicals all day. That's just occurring to me now that that's probably not all right. The research is is still in its infancy because we are getting into that, but you're right. The things we do know is the skin is your largest organ. The skin is probably the most susceptible to outside influence. Um, you are wearing um, basically, you know, petroleum-based products. Let's call them plastics for, for lack for, for a general term. They are made up of five to ten thousand different chemicals. And those chemicals, a lot of times, are not good for you. I mean, you guys all probably heard about the the horrific train accident that was in Ohio recently in the last mm -hmm. few months. And it was all it was it was the chemicals that were all the the trouble chemicals were all going down to the Mississippi Valley to create plastic. So those chemicals are things that are really heinous when they get exposed to um, the to humankind, and, and they can be entombed in different areas to make sure that they're not leaching into you. But that evidence is not really compelling right now. There's a thing called PFAS, which is a polycarbon fluoride, whatever it's called, but it's a, it's known as PFA, PFAS it's called. It's really bad. And, and, and the evidence there is, is really compelling. And that's still put on outdoor garments and used in fire extinguishers and, um, and all sorts of sprays like that. It's being phased out slowly, but surely, but that's something that should have been phased out as soon as we heard about it. Some companies are saying, we'll get to it by 2030. I think the same thing can be said about a lot of the things we're putting on our skins and our body mm -hmm. and our carpets and our, and our, and our, and our curtains and our shoes. And they are, they are being absorbed into the skin. And we're now seeing that it is crossing. These materials are crossing into the, they're crossing the cell membrane um, um, uh, area and they're going into our blood cells. They're going into our, our deep lung tissue. They're, they're, they're just all over our bodies and early evidence is it's causing endocrine disruption. It's causing, uh, it's a precursor for cancer. Um, and, and other things. But uh, again, as I said, the studies are still coming, but it is, it's not good. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, great for a bumper, not necessarily good for your skin. Um, so unless collective, just so you know, we'll put the links up again at shiftheads.ca sure. so you can shop the t-shirts, you can shop the shorts and all those things. And now the sneaker, when Ryan um, took the sneaker to a sneaker convention, uh, he was a little bit novel to everybody with it because it was different. And uh, those sneaker heads, the boy, they like to be experts. Eh? They like to know all the sneakers. And when you walk oh, yeah. in with something new that they don't know, um, they ask questions. So, Ryan, what did you discover? Because I, I think that people were truly surprised and almost um, doubtful that it was even possible that Unless could create this plant mineral issue. There was surprise that it was 100% made because there's usually the, this is made from 50% recycled materials and, you know, touting, no, this thing that I'm wearing right now is made from plants was a surprise. And the thing that really surprised me myself was that when I asked people about, do you care about that? Is that a selling point for you? For the most part, people saw it more of a really nice bonus. They were still honed in on 
How does the shoe look and is it comfortable? Those were still the number two, the big two things that people cared about. And so it was cool to see people say, hey, this is like, this looks like an expensive shoe. I had a guy, one of the interviews that didn't make it to the video. He thought that he's like, do those things cost like 600 bucks? But no, 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 no. They do not cost 600 bucks. They may look like they cost that much, but no, it's made from plants, all this and that. And so I feel like people got some encouragement knowing that they could get that really high quality looking shoe with this brand new way of actually making it, which I found was surprising. I'm curious, Eric, if if you saw if you see that as kind of a bonus, like is that kind of what you were yeah. going for? Yeah, I think for sure, Ryan. I think that the idea was we don't want people to compromise their their tastes for their values. Yeah. Or their values for their tastes. And until now in in fashion in general, you have to compromise one. You can wear something that's super sustainable, but it's probably looking more fair tradey. Um, and, and, and it's something you probably don't want to rock, but to show up at a sneaker convention like you did rocking the degenerates and still getting props for the looks, the style. And oh, by the way, it's 100 percent plants and minerals. That's 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 exactly the, what we were looking for, because it's that intersection of taste and values that's so critical, because our whole thing is how do you create disruption in, in the shoe industry? Let's not call it fashion when it was shoes in, in the sneaker economy, if you will. And, and do it in a way that doesn't, um, that's scalable. Um, and, and I think right now you've got some really cool sustainable brands and you know them, whether, you know, you can you can name off the top of your head, I'm sure with the Allbirds and the Vejas and the Thousand Fells and, and what have you. And you've got these these capsule collections coming from big brands like the the um, um, the Future Craft from Adidas, uh, the Ocean, uh, Parley Ocean Plastic from Adidas, the Space Hippie from Nike, et cetera. Everybody's got their own, but they're all, to me, they 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 have have done a great job, but they're still made out of plastic for the most part, and they they might be recycled, it might be bioplastic, it might be different things, but and some of them just have have dumbed down the quality of the of the taste, and and I think our mission was to make sure we can bring the the taste at the highest level with the sustainability at the highest level, and that's kind of like what was the uh, intersection we targeted and. And I say it's early days, but we're, we think we've got there and it's, 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 I call it, you know, a, a, we're, it's degenerate 1.0. There's a 1.1 in the works. There's a 1.2 in the works. There's nice. always we can do better, but it's the 1.0 and it's, it speaks to going back to your, to your point earlier, Shane, about the look, it comes from who we are, which is we're from the Pacific Northwest. We're proud from the Pacific Northwest. So we we're we're part of you know the craftsmanship and the workmanship meets streetwear, meets skate, meets cold water surf, and all those things kind of go into it. You can kind of see that with the deeper outsole, the deeper cup sole, the low to the ground, protective sidewalls, and breathable construction and clean design. I mean, that's kind of what we wanted to have a no-nonsense shoe that you could wear for any occasion. Uh, it is fascinating to to have that. I mean, the reality, Eric, is that when you talk about a recycled shoe that a lot of these companies are trying to sell, I mean, that is great that you're giving second life to all the plastics that are there. But the reality is at the end of it, when you're done with it, it's still just a plastic shoe that doesn't have a place to go. And that would be the distinction between what what this shoe and the ideas around it are versus those other shoes is this has a destination to go, which as a business person, I think is such an important, important part of business today that, you know, the end of life idea of your product, it needs to be baked into this next generations of business people. Like, where does it go when you're done? That's, that's, it, it boils down to that. That's where we've been. People always say this, uh, uh, the, you know, that capitalism is bad. Capitalism is not bad. It's beautiful. Uh, greed is bad. And we need to bake in 
the the notion that if you build a product, it you have to also build in the destination for it when it's done. And that's where business needs to go next. And use responsibility. I mean, and that, that's exactly what you're getting at. And it's like, and that is not adhered to by any company that I know of with the exception of unless. I mean, it's like who in their right mind takes responsibility for product at the end of life when you're done with it, other than the municipalities that have to take it away and put it in landfills. And we know yeah. what's happened to our landfills, right? They're, they're, they're just becoming overburdened uh, and they're, and they're swelling up and they, we need to, we need to reduce the pressure on them. So to me, to make something from the end in mind, and we always say like, well, at, at the end, what do we do as a company? We make good dirt. That's it. Hmm. Make good dirt. All of our product great. goes back to dirt. It comes from dirt. It goes back to dirt. So we we talk to we talk about hey, we generate cool product that degenerates that then we we allow ourselves to regenerate. So we're actually piloting what we're calling regenerative fashion. I love it. Um, you literally are from the Pacific Northwest. Like, I feel like there's a vampire about to jump out of the trees behind you. <laughs> um, you're so Pacific Northwest. Um, the symbolism though, Eric, allow my hippie self to come through. I've noticed in some of the designs that there has been a little bit more symbolism that you're burying into this. Now, I don't know if it's accidental and maybe I'm just making this up and adding a bunch of meaning where it's not there, but you do have this uh, Roots Biodegradable Long Sleeve Tea. And the other one was the, there's another tea that's, it's a tree, it looks like a tree or plant and it's got, you know, the roots. So it's sort of the, the notion of the iceberg, right? That you're seeing the tip of the beautiful part, but the reality is, is the roots run really, really deep. So inside the philosophy with your team, is that a big part of that? Because I feel uh, in my heart that that's a big part of the conversation before you design the tea. Why are we here? Yeah, hundred percent. I think plant power is kind of like what we call it, and and I think I, I would I would say yeah, the hippies were onto something uh, back in the day. But I do think this is about modern innovation as well. If you look at what we're tapping into with with the uh, plant proteins and 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 the unlock that they've had recently you know not just from beyond meats and impossible burgers and that stuff but really the innovations they they've come to in the dairy industry and really putting pressure on you know do we really need to drink milk from cows when we can have a delicious oat milk latte anytime we want so i think the the plant um, enzymes and the polymers that are there are really interesting and so take a walk away from plant proteins but let's talk about the power of plant polymers and so we're we're really working with some leading edge, cutting edge, bleeding edge um, innovation engineers and scientists, uh, primarily on, 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 the, on the degenerate with a company called Natural Fiber Welding. These guys are in Peoria, Illinois, which is the middle of farm country in America, the Midwest Belt. And uh, the guy who's uh, the founder, Luke Haverhals, he comes from a background of farmers and he's tapped into it. He always talks about his mom, the way she was able to tap into the power of plants um, for just generally, you know, farming, consisting, eating, cooking, baking. And he just saw that as a, as a, as a recipe to say, how, how does he follow that? And how does he create similar recipes out of the same ingredients to make things? Um, so he's unlocked all sorts of things for us to play with, whether it be the, the Miram, which is his plant-based leather, whether it be the Tunera, which is his natural foam rubber, um, or it's whether it be the, um, the pliant, which is the rubber outsole. So he's developed not just a plant, hundred percent plant-based leather, but 100% plant-based midsole foam, which is unheard of in this industry, and also 100% plant-based um, rubber uh, for the outsole. So all of it doesn't require synthetics. And then the, the challenge for us was how do we put it together without glues? But that's a different part of the conversation. So yeah, plants are the future, my friend. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm all in on this. Yeah, I love it. And uh, they smell good too, Ryan. Even your stinky yeah, feet were, uh, were made they to do. smell good. Hey, tell us about they the do. smell. 
They yeah, well, when I took them out of the box, there's a sneakers have a smell, and I like the sneaker smell. You know what Ryan, you know what that smell is? What is it? Petroleum glue. Your smell. That's... You like it when you open up a shoebox because you you get a little high from the uh, yeah. Well, it's I like glue in your carpet it. when you move into your house. If you're not a sneakerhead, you move into a new house. Like it's got that new carpet smell. Your car's got that new car smell. That's not a really a good smell, really, in the big picture. There's <laughs> something there, though. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I open the box. I'm like, well, that doesn't smell like a normal shoe. That doesn't smell like a Jordan. And I take another whiff. I'm like, what the heck? And I'm like, this smells like a flower. This smells like perfume. And then I walk it over to my roommate. I'm like, am I crazy? Do these smell really good? And Right now, I just moved into a new apartment that's the closet is open and I've got the degenerates on my sneaker shelf and I can smell them from here. And they're at least like they're they're on the other side of the room and it's a very nice floral smell. And Eric, I, I have to ask, how, how yeah, so, is that so, smell possible? So our Am friends and partners at Natural Fiber Welding, they are able to actually tune a smell into uh, into the materials because, again, we're not using traditional materials here. It's not a leather that's been tanned and, 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 and heavy metal to death. It's not a synthetic that's been glued to death. It's a, it's a plant-based material. So we kind of wanted to have a little bit of a throw, a, a nod to plants. I think that the smell you're referring to is like a patchouli um, smell that comes that from a licorice type thing. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's pleasant and, you know, and it sticks around even after wearing it for a while. So, I mean, that shoe closet that typically smells rather bad after the new smell, new, uh, after the new plastic smells fall, fades away, um, it, that patchouli smell will continue to help compensate for maybe some foot odor. <laughs> That's appealing for yeah. not necessarily the shoe owner, but maybe the partner of the shoe owner. Um, that's for sure. Uh, by the way, that tea that I will post, the other one was called the uh, Essentials Biogradable Three Pack with that flower plant power biogradable tea. It's beautiful. Um, uh, Eric Litke is here. Unless Collective is the shoe. Eric, uh, I know that this is asking you which, like, which one is your favorite child, but black uh, degenerate shoe, white degenerate shoe. If you had to pick a favorite, which one's Eric's favorite? It's all seasonal. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing the white ones right now, but I did yeah. flip out for black laces. Oh. So I, I, I like oh. kind of like the the more like I'm, I I have the luxury of having multiples of things. So I wear my I wear my black with white laces and my whites with black laces just to give it a little bit more pop. Um, and I'm also lucky enough to wear it with some of our new socks we're developing right now as we wear a test to, to figure that out because socks are uh, the next innovation we're hoping to bring to the market because all socks are plastic socks. And, uh, you know, if you think about those, you, right. know, you pull in your sock, you throw out a pair, where do they go? Yeah. So we're, we're trying to solve for all these different things, but yeah, I'd say, uh, I'd say white for the summer and black for the fall and winter. Love your skin. It's really what it is. I there love it. It's beautiful. All right, Eric Litke, Unless Collective, we uh, we just love the product. We love the notions behind it. I'm a hippie, so I love uh, the symbolism and and everything that that you guys have put into it. Ryan loves the sneakers, so it all works out. Thanks so much for being here, brother. I uh, yeah. we really appreciate it, and and um and I know Ryan loves the shoes. Thanks for having me. And Ryan, if you ever want a job in sales, you give us a call, man. You are. <laughs> are you trying to poach my teammate here Eric? come on there's there's free stuff freelancing in, in today's economy everybody <laughs> can do a little bit of everything so I love it. all right take care you guys thanks for having me this is the shift podcast
There's been so much going on around the world, and uh, we need to get into conversation about that. We've been avoiding it because somebody's been busy working, traveling around the world, doing his thing. Jonathan Berkshire Mariner is here with us, Director of Foreign Affairs, National Security and Defense. And the, what's the full title? Because you've got, uh, you've, you, people will remember you from your focus on Indo-Pacific, but Jonathan, what, what is the whole new title that you've taken on? Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Shane, for having me back on. It's always a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, uh, I guess we get points for, for the longest titles. Uh, uh, but now it's Director of Foreign Affairs and National Security and National Defense, which is obviously a lot of topics. Uh, the good news is that the Indo-Pacific and Asia still sort of follows falls under my uh, territory. So we can still talk about that. Um, but many other things, too. Wow. Um I mean, that is a big title. Um, it's like your business card just kind of run, you know, when you run out of room on a birthday card and you start writing down the side, I feel like that's kind of what your title's starting to look like. Yeah, um, side, but, yeah. I feel like you know, you've been, <laughs> you've been busy though. You've been everywhere. You've been um, traveling around. I mean, post COVID there is travel. There are all the things that are happening. And as you take this, this sort of foreign affairs, global look, um, there's an awful lot to get caught up on when we used to just talk about, you know, that Pacific rim area that was a lot more simple conversation although it was obvious that spillover from other geopolitical problems was a real thing but now as we expand that i mean i don't even know how you try to order that checklist if you will yeah i mean it's complicated but in a way i think i like to take it down to the simple elements and um you know some of the drivers or the challenges that we we talked about several times in the china relationship and in, in the indo-pacific they're actually shared quite closely with other geographies too. So just one sort of sort of data point or benchmark point to kind of mention is the war in Ukraine, for example. So Russia's unjustified war in Ukraine, I mean, has direct implications on all of the things that we've talked about before uh, happening in the Indo-Pacific. So China is watching this closely, not, not so that it can necessarily mimic Russia's actions, but it's carefully calibrating how the West is responding to this. Um, and I think European states as well, they see uh, how Asian states have reacted to the war. Uh, several Asian states, for example, have taken putting sanctions on on Russia for its activities. Um, and with that, I think there are some expectations that if there's to be a potential contingency or conflict in Asia, that Asian countries expect European countries to stand up. So, you know, I think that we've realized in simple terms, I guess, to, to finish up on this point, that the world is very interconnected. The supply chains now economically are, are interconnected. The technology is interconnected uh, and the national security is interconnected. So I think that, uh, yes, certain countries, certain regions have their own unique challenges. But I think that we're realizing now, and especially this on the adversarial side, uh, whether it's Russia and China and their, quote unquote, uh, no limits friendship, um, or, or other authoritarians now. We see Iran, for example, uh, working uh, working with Russia, providing uh, kamikaze drones uh, for the conflict in Ukraine. So there's not simple geog geographical lines that we used to draw for ourselves before, where the Middle East was the Middle East, you know, Europe's Europe, uh, Asia's Asia. Um, we, we're seeing a lot more uh, interlinkages and interconnections. It is fascinating. I'm assuming that when you talk about an example of China, you are, it's sort of like a China-Thailand uh, scenario. And clearly, the conversations this past week with U.S. and China, that has been, <laughs> ooh, that's been an interesting one to watch. But there, for the first time, it, it was five years. It's been a long time. And um, yet, there was a representative from America in Beijing for the first time in a very long time. So um, is that very significant? Because there's been more of these sort of Speaker of the House type visits. 
um, symbolism, but is this one more significant? Yeah, so thanks. I mean, so I think significant in one sense and non insignificant, sorry, uh, in another. So in one sense, just the fact that senior U.S. officials, so Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, was in Beijing for for uh, consultations with his Chinese counterparts. Um, this visit was intended to be uh, ha intended to happen six months ago. Um, but, uh, you know, so much has happened in the news cycle, we probably forget about this. But uh, Shane, you probably remember, we must have talked about this on the show before, the balloons overhead, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, over Canada and the United States, the surveillance balloons and that whole issue, which eventually one of the balloons was shot, well, several of the balloons were shot down, actually, but one of the balloons was shot down um, over Canadian airspace, um, another couple were shot down over American airspace. This sort of cast a dark shadow over the relationship for, for that period, and the United States canceled its trip at that point to China. Uh, I think there's a growing feeling in Washington, D.C. that they want not to have a reset with China, and it's not that all of the issues have gone away, but they want to have some level of dialogue. There's been a lot of close calls recently, uh, military ships, naval ships coming uh, very, very close to each other. It's very aggressive sort of Chinese tactics in the, in the naval realm where they're getting, you know, within meters uh, of the United States uh, hulls, for example, uh, and potentially having some accidents. We see this also in the, in between uh, air forces uh, in the East China Sea, even Canadian pilots have had close calls with Chinese pilots. So I think the goal from the American side is just to have dialogue, just to basically have basic communication um, and open hotlines. So basically, if we do get into a, a situation where a, a conflict looks like it may happen, that you could at least have one-on-one -on -one discussion. Um, the end result, unfortunately, has been that the Chinese have thought it's not in their interest to resume these hotlines. So they continue to see it as a as sort of a bartering point. And uh, the, the discussions, I think there were some things that came out of it. But at the end of the day, the Chinese continue to freeze out the Americans on a, some sort of a hotline. When you get into conversation with other academics and, and when you get into conversation in, in your think tanks, if you will, um, how, how do you navigate how do you even pick a topic? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I mean, I can just say to you, uh, Russian airplanes uh, it parked in Canada being given to Ukraine. Um, you know, that the symbolism of that. I mean, we've seen it everywhere else in the world. I mean, with yachts and all these things. But Antonov is a huge symbol for Russia and for Ukraine. The history of Antonov, um, Oleg Antonov, and what he created. And then not to mention that I can't believe Canada would do such a thing when all, all kinds of other countries have taken yachts and boats and all the things. But this one, all of a sudden, it's, it's threats of severing ties. Do you just have to watch that closely? Is it that grandstanding? Um, you know, how do you sort of filter through that when you get together with your colleagues and you're like, okay, this is a big deal here? I think, I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, and, you know, I like to say it's a daily thought process where we're constantly refining it. But I think there's a couple of things that go into it. I mean, the first in the first realm, we look at macro trends. So there's a lot of micro examples. and I think that's a good one. And there's all sorts of things. I mean, I would even you know, I want to say the Ukraine was a micro example because it's a very visceral, significant example. But it's it's part of a larger macro trend. And that's uh, aggression and revisionism from one of the largest states, a permanent five state in the United Nations Security Council, which is Russia. Um, and it's one trend of, of other series where we've already seen this exist. For example, their invasion of Georgia in 2008, their activities in Moldova and, and many other parts of the world. So we look at the macro trends first. 
And I think that the second element would be some of the, the revisionism that China has, uh, its a la carte approach to international law in the region. So we could zero in on specific examples like Taiwan, um, you know, or the East China Sea or, or specific disputes with the United States. But I think at the, at the first blush, we look at those macro trends. And because we're a Canadian think tank, we then want to make sure that it intersects with Canada's interests and, and you know, why should Canada care about this? So we, we internally try to think about that ourselves first. You know, is this something that, you know, not just, you know, Jonathan Miller and a few of his friends at a think tank care about, but is this something that regular Canadians should care about? And if they aren't thinking about it, why should they? How do we communicate that to them in, in a sense that's not pretentious, that's not, you know, sort of overly jargonistic? Um, but how do we communicate this to regular Canadians that, you know, for example, supporting uh, Ukraine, as one of my colleagues, uh, Balkan Devlin, you often says, is not an act of charity, but it's an, actually an act of self-interest. Uh, and we mm -hmm. truly believe that. We, it's, it's not like we're just donating to the Ukrainians just because we feel bad. Um, we're donating to them because they're the front line right now for freedom and democracy uh, in Europe. And after that, it's, it's all of our NATO alliances uh, right, right behind them. Mm -hmm. That that to me sounds like a really great and Balkan's such a smart cat too. That um, w when you look at that micro level, which is the small level for those who aren't familiar with the words, and the macro level, the sort of overarching broad scope of it, um, that would be the difference, right? The self interest of protection, and then the the charity aspect of it. I'm not quite sure which one's the micro, which one's the macro. You could probably swap those out in most arguments, but that would be a great example of of the difference between the two. On a micro level, this matters, and on a big scope, this matters. So um, it is quite fascinating to do that. Now, do you find that these conversations, when you're able to shape them, um, you're, 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 forgive this if it's offside in the language use, but it's the only way that I can think to communicate it. People like you that do this geopolitical, international sort of look, you're basically a, a diplomat in not necessarily between countries, but between your Canadian people that listen to your Canadian think tank and translating um, that, right? You're translating these large, heavy vocabulary, academic think things, and you're, 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 you're the advocate of diplomacy translating it back to Canadians. Do you find that that has an impact? Like it really does have an impact when you go to upcoming NATO conferences coming, things that matter to Canadians when you're able to translate it down into language that most of us understand and then be able to take it back up that ladder again? Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I think so. And I mean, I think a couple of advantages, I mean, think tanks have evolved over the years. Um, but one thing is that foreign policy, you know, maybe in the 50s, and I, I doubt even in the 1950s, it was like this, but there was a sense that you might have 60 people in a room who were maybe worked for the external affairs department back what it was called back in the day in Canada, um, and maybe a couple in the prime minister's office and that they were the elite, the cabal of elite who really cared and made all the decisions and no one else was a foreign policy player. Um, due to the trends of globalization, the interconnected economies, trade, security arrangements, military growth, um, you know, we're definitely no longer in that period that not only is it not just one department, so I mean, in the federal government, there's multiple players uh, now in foreign policy, but then you get out of the federal government, you have provincial players, you have uh, municipalities who are, who are foreign policy actors themselves. You have individuals in media, you have uh, academics, think tankers, private sector. So I think that one of the unique parts of a think tank is we try to bring together a lot of those pieces 
um, we're not just a facilitator of government voices or academic voices, but I think uh, some of the better think tanks anyways, try to bring together and curate a lot of those different audiences and say, hey, what we're talking about here is Canada's interests. We're not talking about, you know, uh, our foreign ministry's interests or, you know, the Business Council of Canada, as much as I respect them, their interests, everyone's got their own their own interests. But I think that we want to bring, a, a, you know, a nice sort of cosmopolitan view of, of a lot of Canadian interests. And the last point I would make, Shane, is that Canadians actually are fairly intelligent on these issues. So I think one of the, the unfortunate things about the way that we looked at foreign policy before is that, well, you know, a lot of Canadians are just not educated enough to think about these issues. I think, frankly, that's quite arrogant. Uh, if you look at some of the polling uh, of, of Canadians on these issues, yes, not everyone, you know, knows knows about every trend happening in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Indo-Pacific, nor should they, because they have their own jobs and professions. Um, but on some of the big drivers about Canadian interests, they actually are very well, fairly well informed. Um, and one last point I would make on this is defense spending, for example. Um, we've been told by this government um, and previous governments that Canadians just frankly are not interested in defense spending. They just don't see it as a priority. But yet we've seen recent polls, I think it was the Nanos polling, that showed you know close to 65% of Canadians really understood that. They really understood that we do need defense spent, more defense spending, and the world is changing. So I, I wouldn't take Canadians for granted on this. They actually are fairly informed on these issues. Uh, and it is fascinating. Great uh, dovetail into NATO's conference coming up and, and the impact of NATO and all things going on around the world. Uh, this conversation um, becomes heavier and heavier. It's top level as it gets. And and what are we looking at in today's uh, world of things that matter to Canadians, Alan NATO? Well, I think there's a couple, again, going back to these macro trends and and uh, trends that we things that we want to instantly see happening at, at the summit in July. And then there's the, the long term trends. And I think they, they splice together pretty well. So, I mean, one temptation could be to say, geez, there's like, you know, so many international summits every it seems like every week there's an international summit. Why should I care about this one? I mean, how many summits has NATO had over the past you know, uh, a couple decades, that, that's a very um, understandable temptation. The reason why I think you should care about this one more, um, of course, is that we have a large scale continental war uh, in Europe. Um, and I think the big driving question right now is the future of Ukraine. Um, you know, if we continue to take this complacent view with the alliance that, yes, you know, we support Ukraine, we all want to say the right things, but we're not really sure about what the future of Ukraine is in the alliance because it's 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 muddy and it's difficult. Um, I think we're going to have real problems. I think that's the main issue that needs to be resolved in this summit is it's not going to be resolved in July and all of a sudden Ukraine becomes a part of NATO, but we need serious security guarantees um, to the Ukrainians and a real viable path for their membership, um, not just rhetoric. I think that's that's one thing that I think hopefully comes out of it. And the second thing I think will be countries really stepping up to the plate. And Canada, I'm looking at you in this one because in the G7 context, you know, we are one of the laggards. I think we're behind the Italians now on defense spending is that we've all made commitments for a long time to, to, to uh, match the 2% of, of gross domestic product GDP uh, towards defense spending. That's been a commitment that all NATO states have made for years. Um, and Canada continues to fall very flat on this. Um, there was a discord leak from the Washington Post that, that uh, 
uh, Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned that not only will we not make it this year, but we'll never make it. <laughs> um, yeah, jaw-dropping moment. Jaw-dropping. I, I mean, and again, just showing our credibility continuing to, to wane. So I think we need to really step up. We can't just, it can't be the old uh, the old uh, shoe that we slip into and say, oh, we'll try to worm tongue our way out of this one again. We have to absolutely come up and step up with some significant commitments. Especially when you look, we've got neighbors to Russia over the north. So it's, it's absolutely... Uh, imperative that that Canadians pay more attention. I would agree with you. I think Canadians are paying way more attention. I know that here on the shift, we have so many people that are reading the articles and, and listening to things going, why is that this not ha- is not happening? Why are we not doing this? We hear stats of Canadian military being understaffed by 10% plus. And not to mention our the military, one third of all military members versus the number of Russians that invaded Ukraine. Um, and and that's so and that's just regular people. That's what we have. That's the whole inventory. And I think though that context uh, really matters. I want to talk to you about history. Uh, we've had so many conversations with our friends in Ukraine, and the narrative and word selection has become so important right now. Right, Russians. It's not the war in Ukraine. They're, they're trying to say you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine. History writes what it is, and in today what we choose it is. And when we look at the internet and we Google it and when articles are written and they say war in Ukraine and, and sort of loose language, it it really becomes written in history that way with the internet and less journalistic standards available in what gets written in history. Do you find that that's so incredibly important today in, in the geopolitics and everything around the world in the foreign affairs that those little words matter more than ever because it can get written in history incorrectly if we're not very careful. I just, I can't help but think of World War II and Czechoslovakia and the language that was used around that. There's your lesson and how history is written today and it matters. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. And I think you highlight something. I mean, we're in uh, an era and we've been in this for a while. And I mean, you could argue we've been even in World War II, there was information wars and information wars. Propaganda and all the stuff. And, uh, but it has spiraled to a level that is 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 far more multi-layered uh, than it was during the World War One, World War II days. And a lot of that is just the different mediums, you know, digitally, social media, algorithms, uh, so many different ways, um, state media just being pumped out through so many channels through disinformation, um, that it's hard to control the narrative. And that's, so you may have, even if you succeed, as you say, um, in in, um, having some very factual, credible news sources uh, label these things correctly, um, you have so much of beyond that, the underbelly of news uh, in the social media realm and and that that's being controlled by bots that's pushing out this this information. Sometimes it's more obvious, sometimes it's more in this sort of vanilla zone, but still sort of um, counterfactual. Um, So I think, I mean, one of the challenges that we have is actually just shining light onto this, but also an educational one is just, uh, you know, most people who are not experts on these topics uh, they don't seek out, you know, foreign affairs or foreign policy, these uh, sort of online policy journals that most people in the know would be reading. Um, they kind of find their news through Twitter or Facebook or or something else, and they can't decipher sometimes between, you know, what's, a, what's disinformation and what's not. So I think this is the real, one of the fundamental challenges here. Um, and there, I, you know, hate to be pessimistic on it, but there really is no silver bullet. I mean, I think 
the more and more that we try to engage with civil society on this, try to fund some organizations who are doing good work. Um, McDonald Laurie Institute, for example, has its own website, Disinfo Watch, um, which looks at some of the raw pieces of disinformation, um, especially as it relates to uh, Chinese and Russian actors here in Canada. But it, it takes agency and activity from the individual too. It's not something you can be complacent on. You have to be an active, critical reader. And that's that's hard for some people because they're just they're not invested in they have other uh, you know hobbies, interests, and they just don't want to put the time in sometimes that, that, yeah. that others do. Well, we have enough jobs to do, that's for sure. Yours is even bigger. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Senior Fellow, Director of Foreign Affairs, National Defense, National Security at McDonald Laurier Institute. We could do this for hours. Welcome home. So now that you're back, um, I do look forward to chatting a little bit more uh, frequently about these things. So thank you, sir. It's great to see your face. Thank you. You too, Shane. Thanks a lot. This is The Shift Podcast. They call him Handy Andy, but it turns out he's pretty handy with the foot rubs. <laughs> What's going on? What are you reviewing now? Well, you know, Shane, I, I, I review a lot of tech gadgets. And so I always get emails like, hey, do you want to review this? Do you want to re review that? Well, this company was like, hey, we have this foot massager we want to send you to review. And I have sore feet, Shane, like really bad feet because, I, as you know, I jump rope a lot and uh, I always get injured and I don't rest enough. And so they're always hurting. Like when I wake up in the morning, I can barely walk. So a foot massager, I was like, yes, I will review this. So they brought it in. If people want to see the review, they can go to shiftheads.ca. I posted the video. But what I did, Shane, is I took it out of the box. And instead of like trying it out and then making a video of the review, I actually filmed the first time that I was experiencing this foot massage. Now, I can't even tell you the last time I got a foot massage. That's how long it's been. But this machine, it's it, basically it's like a box and you put your feet inside there and they got air compression in there. They have heat and they have this like needling and they, ha they do that Japanese um, massage technique. What's it called? Shetsui or something like that. Do you, do you know? You know words. You know all the words. I, I, you know words. <laughs> yes. Shiatsu massage. Shiatsu. Is that what it Did is? Did you just say Shetsui? <laughs> oh, my God. But you, Shiatsu I, massage, I think is what you mean. Yes, I know words. Thank you. Know you know words. You know words. <laughs> so I, I can never pronounce that word. So that's that was clearly. All right. So, so the video is up. Um, you put your feet up. in it. You hit the remote. Um, I've I've used these ones before, but more of the cheaper ones, right? Yeah. This one looks like it's got a lot more to it. Um, you know, plus the remote control is super handy. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that, you know, when you put your feet in, I mean, I was kind of hoping for, I wanted to see the selfie view, right? Like I wanted to see your eyes roll back in your oh, head man. going no. on. It, it, it was quite the experience because it's like a motor and it's And it, it has like different phases. So you do a 15 minute or a 30 minute foot massage session. So it's changing. So like at the 10 minute mark is not what it was like at the two minute mark. So it just keeps changing. And, I'm trying to film this review, but I'm like getting all these crazy sensations of like, it's a wonderful foot massage and it really relaxes you. 
So this might go down as the best gadget that I've reviewed this year, Shay. I actually set it up underneath my desk now. So when I'm writing Ooh. at my desk, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to write for 30 minutes. And while I write, I'm going to get this foot massage. So I'm totally multitasking right now. I highly recommend people check this out. If you know anybody with sore feet, you can buy this on Amazon. Wow, it is amazing. It is, it's an experience. Let me put it that way. And now I'm having foot massages while I work. It's like like right now, right now. Not not right now, not right now. Because I, what, you know what? Can I tell you something funny? I oh did boy. it when I was having a Zoom call, and mm. at one point, it gets it gets really compressed, and it starts compressing your feet, and then it starts needling it right. And like you could feel it. And so I started making all these weird faces. And the person's like, Are you all right? I'm like, sorry, I'm, I'm was that I'm, the shih tzu a... part? Is that what was going on there? Well, I, was, I just I had to fess up and be like, I I reviewing this foot massager and this thing's pretty intense. So yeah, I shouldn't well, be I, multitasking. I, I like the notion of the foot massage, that's for sure. It's uh you kind of got me craving one now. So I the video's it's, up there. It's good. The video's it's good. up there. It, it, if you're looking for a gift idea for somebody and and they um, they have sore feet, this is like my feet feel good. Like I'm, my feet feel so good, Shane. I think I'm gonna get injured because I'm gonna feel overconfident oh, again. Yeah, you, I'm, eh? well, it's so good. Your point. beard grew, so we'll start there. Okay, <laughs> so right. uh, we've got about a minute here. HandyAndyMedia.com. The reliving the internet with your first email. What was that about? Yeah, so I found this website called NeoCities. And if everybody, anyone from back in the early uh, 90s remembers GeoCities, that was like the first web hosting site where you can make your own website. So everybody would create all these crazy websites back in the 90s. Well, after they closed down, they created this new thing called NeoCities to capture all these old websites. So someone like Ryan, if you ever want to know what websites look like in 1995, this is where you want to go. I, I went down it. I was like, remember how we used to call Shane where you would surf the net? I was surfing NeoCities, looking at right. all these old websites. Uh, brought me back. So NeoCities, definitely check it out if you want to go back in time. Oh, very cool stuff. I love it. And there are some great snapshots, the Wayback Archives and stuff like that, to see old websites. I, the very first website I ever built was for a nightclub in Banff. And I went back and looked at it. And I was like, you know what? Considering that wow. was the first one. I mean, that was pretty cool. Like it, yeah. it was nowhere near what it should have been or what the standard was today. But considering we pulled it off, I was like, huh, that's pretty all right. Good stuff. All right. HandyAndyMedia.com. If you uh, want to watch the uh, the foot massage in real action, real live action, uh, you can go there. That's apparently what our, our group is now. It's a lot of touching. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks, Shade. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.